you sign the papers. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad business deal with your own company. It's going to be like I'm not a part of Facebook. It won't be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not a part of Facebook. My name's on the masthead. You might want to check again. It's because I froze the account? You think we were going to let you parade around in your ridiculous suits pretending you were running this company? Sorry! My Prada's in the cleaners! Along with my hoodie and my you flip-flops, you pretentious douchebag! Security's here. You'll be leaving now? I'm not signing those papers. We will get the signature. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. You... You did it! I knew you did it! You planted that story about the chicken! I didn't plant the story about the chicken. What's he talking about? You had me accused of animal cruelty. Seriously, what the hell's the chicken? And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook. Which I am. You better lawyer up, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. Welcome to the Glop Culture Podcast. Uh, as always, in New York, looking out my window down 7th Avenue, where it doesn't look as though we're about to meet the apocalypse, I'm John Podhoritz. I think somewhere else in New York, Yes, We're sitting Rob Long in New York. Hi, John. Yeah, in New York. Hi, Rob. And it is a it is a beautiful spring day. It's like everything's going to be great, John. Everything's, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be. I look through. I'm looking right now through the J Crew catalog, which for some reason I have in front of me, and everyone's really happy in the J Crew catalog. They're having this fantastic weekend together. Uh, you know, if we could only live in a catalog, <laughs> life would yeah. be so much easier. I and am. in in Washington, back from cruising uh, the uh, the Danube. Yes, but let's, let's 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 be clear. That's not metaphorically cruising. You know, he was not literally like yes, no, he was literally on a boat down the yes. Danube. Is Jonah? That's Gold. the metaphor, right? That's the euphemism. I wasn't in, in like leather chaps cruising the Danube. So I just can I can it. I just stop for a minute about the leather chaps? Can I just it, people <laughs> always say that all chaps are leather. They they are suede. They have to be. Like well, thank you, leather thank, you chaps clear, or, thank you for clearing that up. Thank you for giving yeah, I myself. Uh, have never. I'm not actually sure. I've seen a chap in in real. Am in real I life. the only one? Am I literally the only one on in this podcast who's worn chaps? Uh, <laughs> uh, because I have, and I I, yes. I don't. I think I have some at home. Yeah, like I used to horseback ride all the time. The chaps are. I guess I have as a kid when I took horseback riding lessons briefly. Um, yeah. I went horseback riding and we didn't wear chaps. I would pay a lot of money to see a picture of that. Uh, of me? I, I was eight years old. I was in camp in Canada. It was 1969. So Can you can God you only just, knows if, if – you know, I don't think they invented photography back then. So Can you imagine, uh, Jonah, just the, the – the- the, the complaining and the kvetching <laughs> that must have come from an eight-year-old John Pedoritz about the this horse. It's like it's not walking. It's not stable. He keeps Oi, going what back and feed, forth. What do you feed these things? You guys, you guys, have, you guys, you guys paint such a preposterous portrait of me. It's like it's as though it's as though you met my late grandfather, the milkman, uh-huh. the milkman. Yeah. And I have met him. I have met him. I met him in the, in the reincarnated guise of you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one thing. One thing my grandfather was, my, my late grandfather Julius was, was a catastrophist, and uh, and so um, I don't want to say that. Uh, I don't want to say that uh, catastrophe is upon us. I do want to make one 
quick point about the about the uh, uh, the presumptive Republican nominee and the general oh, okay. behavior. The general behavior of the uh, Republican Party and the uh, either the intellectual base or the sort of organizing base, which is uh, there are very, very, very um, passionate demands that uh, people unify behind Donald Trump and it's time for unity and we have to beat Hillary and it's time for unity, 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 unity. And right. aside from the fact that that some of us are not really joiners and that unity is not our, it's not our, it's not, again, it's not, again, not, you make my point. It's, it's, go ahead. All right. Uh, you know, unity is a perfectly understandable call for elected politicians and people who work, literally work, are paid the for. Politics, yeah. Yeah. In, in the political realm. And that, you know, that this is what parties do. They, they gather together to win victories and to elect the people who are chosen to lead them. And so it's fine for me if, you know, Reince Priebus and others say, you know, we should all gather together and there should be unity. People like me, people like you, Rob, people like you, Jonah, like we are we are under no moral obligation to unify with anybody as a matter of unity above all. I mean, what we are supposed to do, I think, as a practical matter is uh, speak our minds, try to tell the truth as best we can and offer our analysis of situations. And if that if that uh, conforms with a general sense of unity then fine. But if it doesn't, then it doesn't. That's not what we do for a living. That's not who we are. Well, so I find this... Yeah, no, so first of all, I have written scads about unity because I wrote a book about fascism and I have a chapter on unity in Tyranny Clichés and I I think the cult of unity is a natural human desire. You know, this whole thing of, uh, you know, there's when you start listening for it, politicians saying there's nothing we can't accomplish if we all work together um you know if we all work our hardest and try our best we can make this the best yearbook ever um you know that kind of stuff is everywhere in public life and it's 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 total bs um but at the same time more specifically about this point um you know i just came back from this cruise met a lot of people who've been longtime fans of mine i'm hearing from longtime you know readers of national review and readers of my stuff and they're also disappointed in me that I am not rallying to Trump or being a good party guy. And what is fascinating about it, when you think about it, is the the implicit in this is that they, they've always assumed that at the end of the day I was a partisan hack who was doing the bidding of the Republican <laughs> Party. And yeah. they're disappointed to find out that I'm not living down to their expectations. It's a really yeah. – it's a fascinating <laughs> thing. And I, I – you know, I I tell people all the time. You know, I'm having this constantly on Twitter. This whole, you know, you're pro Hillary if you're not rallying for Trump, and I get people constantly saying things like, "Put on your, you know, put on your big boy pants," and you know, and, and support the nominee. I was like, "Do you not know what I do for a living?" You know, I mean, I, my only concept conception of journalistic ethics is never say things you don't believe are true. Doesn't mean you have to say everything you think is true, but. You know, you can leave stuff out if it's impolitic or, you know, whatever, but you don't deliberately lie about anything. And, um, and it doesn't mean you can't change your mind. But the, the implicit assumption behind all these people is all of these criticisms were perfectly fine and dandy during the primary. 
but we just assumed you were saying these things because you liked some other guy more. And, you know, so I have, I have, I am so disappointed in like Rick Perry, right? I mean, Rick Perry, who had said Trump is a cancer on the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Rick Perry said that he's leading the party to perdition, which means hell. And now he's saying, I will do anything I can to help him, including be the running mate of cancer. (laughs) uh, Right. And I just I feel so naive for having thought that, first of all, more people had had higher regard for like for uh, for me for thinking that I actually was telling the truth when I wrote things. But I also feel incredibly naive for thinking that when politicians say things like that, that they would at least feel obliged to stick with them, even if it had political consequences for them. But this cult of unity in the Republican Party is so strong these days. I'm done with my rant. There you um, go. I, I, I come from a different perspective. Um, <laughs> no one cares what I think. And it kind of <laughs> makes me mad. Right? Right? Nobody really – I'm on the periphery of a punditry. I don't you know, write books about it, and I, and I, I, you know, I write a column, but mostly about – not mostly. It's entirely about show business. Um, so I don't have any – I have the opposite problem. I have the problem where people – who I know, I, I know in my my professional life and, and, and even in my social life are mostly liberals say things like, so I guess you love that Trump, huh? I don't know. And, like, I, and then I have to go to paint and say, no, no, see, I don't. And they 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 have, have mistaken me for uh, a Trump supporter. But here's what I was thinking last night. And I, I was searching myself. I'm searching my soul. And I don't need to – we don't have to get to politics too much. But I think it's, it's, it's interesting, and I'll be honest, um, a part of me. A small part of me, aside, uh, aside from all of the likelihood of this event and all of the, 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 the statistical anomalies that would have to occur for this to happen, a part of me was thinking, what if he wins and what if he's not that bad? Wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> I would be <laughs> really upset by that in the same way that I'm just being super honest I do spend. I don't. I mean, I, I, I correct myself. I stop myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now making a good Christian confessional here. Um, I, I, I'm aware of what I'm doing, and I stop it. But whenever I see good news, especially like good economic news that comes out and seems to help a president like this one that I do not support, I do spend a few tiny cycles, brain cycles, not many, maybe a, two seconds, uh, wondering if there's any way I could like. Uh, um, undermine the good news, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's really the same process. By the way, I I, I think that one of the nobody's going to join phenomena. me here. Nobody's going to confess yep, here. I agree with you, but I I'm okay. even going to extend this a little bit. I think that there is a larger phenomenon at work that that in part helps explain uh, the rise of Trump and say the failure of Ted Cruz to receive the vote that I think he thought was his by right and by nature, which is to say that there has been a, um, a, a bizarre and confusing conspiracy on the part of the right, that uh, the right in, in since 2010 has had some pretty remarkable political victories as follows. 
I don't mean just the fact that that there was this big victory in 2010 winning the House and then in 2014 winning the Senate. I mean that the that what happened in as a result of these victories was that a phenomenon that we were all watching impotently, which was uh, Barack Obama advancing a left liberal agenda without any break without any uh, ability uh, or, 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 or in the political system resisting him in the first 16 months of his presidency, passing these four colossal bills, spending $2.7 trillion in new money at a time when the country's economy was retracting in size. And, and, and new money is the very, very best kind of money, we should say. Right, exactly. Nice, fresh, clean yeah, money. Nice, fresh, yeah. And then this spontaneous Tea Party sort of uprising based on the notion that there was something unprecedented and horrifying going on in the expansion of government and the expansion of, of public spending. And it was stopped in 2010. It was halted in its tracks. And since then, Barack Obama has not gotten a major piece of legislation passed to advance the liberal agenda. The liberal agenda has been has been advanced in other ways by the Supreme Court, by courts, and by 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 some of these unconstitutional executive actions. But when the American people had to speak in 2010 and 2014 to say enough, they said enough. In 2012, it was not sufficient to deny Obama a second term. Now, let me just finish this quick Boy, point, which okay. that with all of this. Nonetheless, the right, because of its A, hatred of Obama, and B, because of perverse incentives, has acted as though its political successes and, its, and what happened meant nothing. Mm-hmm. It was all a failure. It was all you know the uh, Washington Republican establishment caving to Obama, kowtowing to him, refusing to do things that it was not in its power to do. And when you make that argument, and Ted Cruz is one of the major people who makes that argument, and and you are basically negating the value of your own victories, it's no wonder that you then say, well, I, I mean, I'm not going to pick any of these guys. They themselves all say they failed. They themselves all say that they did a lousy job. So let me turn to this guy. He at least isn't one of them, and he says he'll stop it, and he'll use – techniques and stratagems that are outside the political system to do it. And I think that's where you have the strangeness of, you know, constitutional conservatives, limited government conservatives deciding that Trump is okay with them because they came to swallow this idea that everything that they had done over the last five, six years, much of it really quite extraordinary and important was meaningless. Hmm. That's my rap. I like it. Thanks. <laughs> I, su- I support this message. Um, yeah. Endorse, hey, yeah. wow. Yeah, okay. Are- well, this has been a lot of fun, fellas. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know. Uh, well, okay, I would only add this because I need to add something. Yes. I would only add that um, that there's the the, the – the, the, the fallacy here for everybody for, – for, I, mean, I mean literally for everybody in the world is that, that things never work. They never really work the way you think they're going to work, and 
you know, it was just it was fun listening to people in 2008. Fun in a in a in a, in a more of a dark sort of you know middle European sense. Uh, talk about how great Obama was going to be. You know, I, it's like those. Remember those? Remember that video that was circ- circulating in 2008 um, of the school children it happened to be really almost 200 or 300 yards from my house. Where they, they, this took place, but a, a, a family in Venice or got together all yeah, the yeah, little I kids singing that song. Yeah, things like Obama's going to heal us. Obama, Obama. Yeah, you know, like, and the children were singing, and the parents were like, their eyes were like, they were glow with joy that like the kids were singing a song, basically that had been written for them about Obama, but also like this bizarre, like over the top sense of what this person could actually do. Like, what he was the a light worker. Of, yeah, right. Yeah, the light worker. That was that that San Francisco Chronicle piece, right? That right, described right. as a light worker, a, a sort of an angel. Of, of <laughs> yeah, that's right. Supernatural and being. A, who a, had yeah, yeah, exactly. And this, the weird, the weirdness of that. Now it feels to me like everyone got super childish all at once. Where there's this attitude that nothing, there's never a reaction to your to your action. Right, that the world is not a dynamic place, a lot of moving parts. So you don't lose the House and the Senate if you're a Democrat. You don't lose state houses if you're a Democrat because you have Obama, and he's and 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 even now you can see in them this kind of like weird glaze. They don't get it, um, and I feel like our side is simply now m- mimicking that, as if that that the realities on the ground, that the fact that there are congressional districts and they're they're done a certain way, the fact that there's an electoral college that's done a certain way, the fact that uh, the president has certain constraints on his abilities, uh, the fact that people in general tend to over time recently anyway have tended to vote the 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 White House party out of Congress out of out of power in the in houses of co- houses of Congress and the Senate. I mean, all these things are somehow no longer op- operating. Right, uh, and they and, haven't and the really been operating for happening. Americans since 2008. It's really, really and the, weird. And the same thing is happening with the Democrats. I mean, so I'm saying yeah. that there was this, you know, re, there were these Republican political triumphs that have been negated by Republicans, and the same thing is happening on the Democratic side. I think with the Sanders boys and the the, the Bernie Bros and everything, which is this notion that Hillary Clinton is no different from a Republican, and the and the Obama years yeah. are a terrible failure. Well, on the basis of what, if you are if you are who, uh, you know, if you are one of these people, you should be looking at this the way we are and thinking, my God, there's been this terrific advance, or, you know, in our case, this horrible advance of liberal governance and cultural liberal triumph over the past seven years. And they're all acting as li- like it didn't happen. And therefore, you know they're what giving this Hillary is? Clinton a terrible time. You know what this is? This is like a collective neuroses. It's actually, it's a country with a neurotic inability to look at the rea- – to at least to count their victories as victories in a realistic way and to de- develop realistic strategies for persuading the other half of the country that doesn't agree with them. I mean yeah, so, that, it, it, right. it, is, it is a form of neurotic behavior. I mean we, we probably all do need therapy, Jonah. I think it's I – mean, one of the things I think is sort of fascinating is that I think – my position on Trump is quite well known, but um, you know, if you if you take the Messiah complex that the Democrats had in two thousand eight with Obama, and for and the Messiah complex that a lot of pro Trump people have on the right, 
what I think is kind of interesting, and I actually kind of think it speaks well of conservatives, you know, is that no one thinks that <laughs> no one, no one thinks that Donald Trump is a messiah figure. No one's talking about him being a light worker, right? Um, uh, if you, I think if the website still exists about whether or not Obama is the messiah. And every now and then I go back to look at it for a chuckle because it has all these fantastic quotes from people actually thinking that he was this 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 true deliverer, you know, this this redeemer of our society. And no one has that kind of rhetoric about Trump. Instead, the sort of romantic fantasy on the right is that a good businessman can, you know, if we could just run government like a business and make yeah. good deals, it'll fix everything. I think it's all crazy talk. But it's so much less crazy psychologically than the stuff that people say about the left. I mean, or about Obama. You know, I mean, there they really. You know, I'm a big believer that liberalism is essentially a secular religion, and I've written about a lot about it. Um, and so their language is more obviously religious. And, um, hey, and on the you. right, the rhetoric is much more um, about this uh, sort of contempt for politics and this belief that normal America, if we could just get normal America. To take over government again, it will fix everything. And yeah. while I, I while I think it's a fantasy, at least it's a much healthier fantasy, and um, speaks better of our side than their side. And one last thing, I think historically, people are going to look back. I mean, the real historians are going to look back at this moment and be utterly fascinated by the rise of New York City urban populism. In, in American history, your populism is almost always yeah. from the heart. Rural, right? Rural, rural southern, you know, mostly southern plains. You know, um, yeah. And you know, the guys with the pitchforks are usually aiming them precisely at people like Donald Trump. And instead, we've got this thing, and I think a lot of it stems from uh, Rudy Giuliani's New York and the experience of Rudy Giuliani's New York. And John knows this stuff better than I do. But at the, its core, in New York City, you can be an insane right-winger, like just a crazy conservative, if you, think this, if you think that porn theaters should be moved away from playgrounds and that you think that homeless crack addicts, should, that business owners should be allowed to kick them out of their restaurants. And if you believe in law and order and letting the middle class make a living, that makes you a crazy right-winger. And the – the rise of Fox News, you know, where I'm a contributor and I hope to stay one, um, has been sort of merging New York City populism with flyover country populism for the last 15 years. And they finally gelled together with Donald Trump. Well, that's a and, very, you know, I think that's a very original. I think you've, you floated an incredibly original idea and that you shouldn't, you, you know, you shouldn't like uh, waste it. You know, in in this cut, you need to you need to develop this like on paper because yeah. uh, you, you're you've got something fresh there that needs greater explication. You know what else needs greater explication? <laughs> well, that's sleep. I, I don't sleep, know what sleep needs greater explication. We have a sleep crisis in this country. That's what Arianna Huffington Are tells you kidding us. Me, John, that's there's there's, no, there's not a way to sleep better. Yes, sleeping is an is. uncomfortable thing, I, and I don't you, like to do it right now. That there is, and the answer is Casper mattresses. Can I tell you about Casper? As you guys know, 
Uh, I'm a purchaser of Casper Mattresses, the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating a commission-driven, inflated prices. It's award-winning sleep service developed in-house, sleek design delivered in this amazing small box. You know, you open it and you sort of tear a couple of things out and this mattress pops out. It's kind of astounding. I have a great pillow, which I also bought, soft, breathable sheets. My kids, my two daughters now have Casper mattresses. They're sleeping better than they were unambiguously before then. Mattress industry forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups, and Casper revolutionized that by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. In-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, springy latex, supportive memory foams together, sleep service that just got the right sink and just the right bounce. Mattresses can cost over 1500 bucks, but Casper mattresses cost 500 for a twin, 600 for a twin XL, 750 for a full, 850 for a queen, and 950 for a king, and buying it is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up, refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. So try it, do it, get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash glop. Use the code glop for that 50 bucks off, G-L-O-P, and that's the pitch for Casper. Gotta love Casper and the sleeping, and it's great. And you know who else has arisen from uh, the big sleep? Uh, is, shall we say... Spoiler John alert! Snow. John Snow. It's a spoiler alert, John Snow, but it's been two weeks. Yeah, fair enough. So I think it's okay to mention that John Snow, dead at the end of last season's Game of Thrones... From the Game of Thrones situation. ...was magicked back to life. And uh, at the end of uh, episode two of uh, of Game of Thrones, I, um, Rob, I heard you. I heard you. Uh, uh, guffaw, chortle, sigh. I what was that? I, I was. It was, it was a. I, what would you call it? I would call it a, a, a an exclamation, kind of a. Uh, uh, you know, here here's what I think about all this stuff. <laughs> um, my unified theory. I just want to know now how the Game of Thrones show ends. I don't want to enjoy any more episodes of it. I just want to know how it ends. I have a feeling that I'm not alone in that. There's so many layers of all of these sort of serialized dramas and also all these other shows on TV um, that you know, at some point we're all going to declare sort of DVR bankruptcy and wipe away the debts we've, we've accumulated on our DVRs. Well, all the crap that's loaded up there that we, we're never going to get to, never going to get to it. And I have a feeling that some people, may, or maybe just me, and I'm alone, but I don't think I'm alone, just want you to tell I, – I don't want to watch the show. Just give me the recaps. Just tell me what happens so that I'm I can sorry. maybe tune in this week. I am sorry, but are you guys readers of recaps? Have you noticed – I, I yeah. don't really – I okay, so recaps, all these papers now have you know recaps of the episode you missed. Right. That's my point. And they're, and they're incomprehensible. Uh, because they're now all written in this kind of fanboy argot, essentially to amuse other people, and largely, I saw so fanboy argot open for uh, Depeche Mode. So oh, thank you very <laughs> wow, much. Wow, really? yes. I thought that was Renegade Jew that opened yeah. for Depeche Mode. But um, but 
actually, I think these recaps are often intended to be read by the people who already saw the episode. I think yes. there's, so that, I think there's can, that. And so they can like tell inside jokes about what happened. Uh, I think there is that, but there's also there are also a whole genre of recaps that are simply recaps. Like, okay, this is a ser- it's like a it's like a Dickens novel that's been printed. Here's the serialized version of this thing. Now you're caught up. And I, I, why, I, okay. Can you explain to me seriously why you would want to read a recap unless you've seen the show? Because you, uh, I think if you've never seen the series, you've never seen it, so you're you're not interested. These things just go right through you; you don't even notice them. But if you have seen the series, like I've I've watched Game of Thrones, I just haven't watched it recently, Uh, and I saw last year's episode where Jon Snow dies. I think it was last year; maybe it was two years ago. Who knows? And I I knew like everyone else that he was going to come back to life, but I'm not really willing now to invest any more time in this thing because I've moved on to other stuff. So, um, like, it's a fantastic, like, there's a fantastic Trump show on read, now. So just read the recaps every week, and it'll take yeah, you three minutes. That's my and point. Seven hour. By the way, the one that's my thing point. My point is that okay. I think that people are actually doing that now. You, I, I know who the characters are now. I'm just following it as a weekly column in a newspaper, like a soap opera, like it's the news, like it's the news. Well, here's the problem with. So I'm watching another uh, show. I'm watching this terrific Trump show. That's on. That's on the other channels, and it's just on all the time. Okay, well, but so I do want to. I do want to say the thing that's <laughs> driving me crazy about this is there are now on Game of Thrones. There are not. There's not one, but two reanimated dead people. Right there's Jon Snow up by the wall, now reunited with his sister, and then down in King's Landing, which is basically the only place you really want to be when you're watching. Which is the best place in the show and it's the most fun there's some giant mountain of a man who is also some kind of reanimated zombie whose name is sir gregor clegane or something like that i can't i can't even remember how he died you don't have to tell me jonah i don't remember how he died now he's back to life and he's defending you know the the great villainous Cersei Lannister. I don't know why he's defending her. I don't know. He seems to have no personality except to be a zombie defending her, whereas Jon Snow is Jon Snow. He's the same Jon Snow that he was before he was dead and, you know, full of Ah. angst and and, and whining and he's whining and pouting and glowering. So if you can reanimate anybody, everyone can be reanimated. Like, it's the problem with magic. So now why don't they reanimate you know the the daughter, the incestuous daughter of Cersei, who died. Then they could some they can bibbity boppity her back to life too. Okay, okay so I, I I can't remember a time I've disagreed with you more. Um, okay. <laughs> so first of all, maybe about mountain, Miller's Crossing and and it being secretly a story of gay of repressed gay love. Yeah, That's so we'd have to go back that far. Yeah, which, yeah okay. I, actually, I still think you're you're, okay. you're 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 a monster for even suggesting, but. Um, so, first of all, the mountain wasn't r- revived. He was just dying um, because he was poisoned in the big fight with the guy from Dorne. You know, right. that, oh, yeah. that trial by combat thing. And the Jon Snow was revived by this – This was truly revived by this god, which they set up in season three when the head of the Brotherhood Without Banners was killed in a trial by combat. And – um it's the whole Lord of Light thing. I don't. I, I think the people who are upset about the Jon Snow thing um, sort of m- miss that. First of all, 
if you're going to revive someone, kudos to the writers for laying the predicates for this three years ago. Second of all, in the world of fantasy, Stephen Miller did a good piece for NRO or no, no, uh, I can't remember who it was now. Uh, someone did a good piece for NRO about all this. In the world of fantasy and comic books, bringing characters back to life is a pretty common thing. And um, in soap operas. Yeah, but it's but it's it's. Uh, I'm not complaining, opera. honestly. I'm I, the thing is, wait, people John don't come Stat- back to life from in soap no, but, operas. No, but if John, no, but they, no, but, they disappear and they come back to town. No, but they're killed and they have funerals, and then three years later, the the producers decide to bring the actor back, and so well, somehow they, they, they say work. it's oh, it wasn't really a, I wasn't right. really dead. It wasn't me and that. There's always no, a my, trick. Here's my problem. My problem is scenes of, of Dallas being a dream sequence. Yeah. No, right, my, right. my my problem – I don't have a problem with Jon Snow being – honestly, and I, I love the show, so I'm not complaining about that. I do think that it's weird that if you're establishing a world in which characters who die can be brought back to life and it's like, wait, I never thought about that before. OK, well, I saw somebody do a spell like this. Let me do it. And, da, 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 and then he's back to life. From there on in – you, you, it starts becoming, you know, anybody who dies, maybe they're not really dead and they'll never really be dead and they can always come back to life. And so they're, so the horror of their death isn't quite so horrible. And, and, and this is George Martin, the original author's fault in my view, because in, you know, in the extremely ill-conceived last two books of the game of Thrones series, which are terrible and which we are now beyond, in the storytelling storytelling is now setting it's the the tv storytelling is now different he has a reanimated character Uh caitlin stark is a reanimated character and uh they left her out of the series her reanimation has not taken place in the series maybe because they wanted to save it for Jon snow who dies at the end of the fifth book of game of thrones and there is no sixth book, so we we don't really know what George Martin had planned, and never will, because he will never write another book. Um, uh, I think it's pretty good. I think the sixth season is pretty good, actually. I think it's great. I think it's um, great. I just thought it would have been more interesting if he had like come back to life and been a White Walker or had some weird connection to the White Walker. You know, said some weird connection to the zombies. You know that he's fighting because they're dead and he was dead and maybe he'll not maybe maybe yet we will yet see that I don't know but but um, it's kind of weird that you know there are these creatures coming back to life that are villains and now a heroes come back to life and unless they make that part of the make that part of the game yeah what's well, funny uh, we, I, we, I we just want happy. it to be over I'm <laughs> well, done with it it's not going to be over there's two more seasons at least. Two more could, seasons, so it's not going to be over. But, you know, <sighs> we've had this conversation a few times where uh, I think a lot of people just don't like it when – and this includes me. I mean I, I think the Jon Snow thing is fine, but as a general proposition, Game of Thrones is so good on the politics side of these yeah. things that when it goes to magic in general, it just pisses you off because it – you know, it's like I remember complaining, you know, pretty viciously when they uh, – when the red woman gave birth to a smoke monster that killed, um, you know, star, the Rob brat, star. Got, yeah, yeah, no, um, Rob Stark. Really no. But anyway, like when you, when you solve problems through magic, it just, it kind of ruins things. And, um, 
and I, and I think that's sort of a sign of how good the show is that you can do this sort of War of the Roses and Middle Earth thing, and when you remind the viewer that oh, this is actually a fantasy thing and there's magic. You're like, no, 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 let's get back to the intrigue. I think that's a really impressive thing about the writing. The thing that drives me crazy about the zombies is, are the reanimated, not the, not the White Walkers, but the reanimated, you know, the true zombies, is in the fight scenes, sometimes it works to sort of stab them with the sword, and then other times it doesn't. Well, I mean, if, 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 if the, even the skeletons can get up and run at you, then, you know, why are they shooting arrows at them yeah. And them falling back. I mean, that would yeah. all be meaningless. They're not consistent on that. Well, this is why Rob wants it, wants it to end. That, you, yeah, you don't want this to is my to problem with Lord of the Rings, too, the movie, the interminable pictures there just went on and on and on and on and on. It was all just like a, this this big, uh, I don't know, we, we, here's what we, we, in show business, we actually call this, we call it a jack story. Because you're, it's like a tire car jack. You jack the car up and then nothing happens. And we says this feels like a Jack story, meaning it feels like a story that's going and going and going, and you, you think it's going in one direction, and then nothing really happens. And I, I felt the way that Lord of the Rings, when you, you go through the whole – the first movie, it's all this sort of ponderous, pompous language, and then it ends in a sort of sour note. And then they go, well, I guess we need to reforge this sword of – whatever the hell the sword name was. And then it's all about, oh, well, we'll do that in the first reel. <laughs> Don't do that in the last reel. Gee, come on. Let's, we all have things to do in life. We all have places to be. Let's get on with it. I mean, there was another scene in one of those terminal movies where they're being chased by scary moths, and the scary moth chased them for like 10 minutes. It feels like 10, 15 minutes, this picture. And suddenly the wizard pulls out a stick with a little light bulb on the end and holds it aloft and the, sends the scary moths away. I was like, dude, pull that thing off at the beginning. Let's get <laughs> moving. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know, you know the you know the the um, the famous formula for soap operas, and these shows really do partake more of the plotting of the soap opera than oh, totally. realize. Uh, Agnes Nixon, who was the great genius of the ABC soap operas, said the plot line of a soap opera was make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. Yeah. So, except for, the, except for the cu- first couple, you have a couple, the last one is true. Right. If you have a couple, separate them. <laughs> you know, because if they right. get together, you're done. So but the they would do it on those shows. They would do it. They would do like it didn't even it wasn't even consistent with a character. So somebody would come up and say, "I really need to talk to you," because and we know as the audience that this person has some information that's vital for the other person to hear. That if the other person heard this information. Their life would be changed immeasurably for the better. And the other person always says the same thing. I don't have time for this right now. Yeah. And then I have to go, wait, I, I have something to tell you. I don't have time. And then they leave. Now, we don't – it never explains where they're going that, that's so important. It's just a, it's just a dramatic uh, a trick. I don't have time for this now. Well, Lost um, used to do that every episode. It would be like yeah. some mystery – it was like somebody would say – this is not your island. It's our island. But you can ask me one question about what's going on on this island. And then they could ask the wrong question. It would always right. be like, you know, where's the water supply? Right. It, you know, We're going to get this. What the hell is right. going why on? Why is smoked turkey why, more expensive than the oven roasted a, turkey? Yeah. <laughs> it would yeah. ask the wrong question. Or it would be like, 
Why why can I only ask one question? I have like four questions. Can I get two? Maybe I can ask a second question. Just use up your questions. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, okay. I have only one thing to pitch to people, which is a, a show I watched last week and I think is fantastic and very surprising on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, you get it for free. It's this sitcom called Red Oaks, which is an incredibly original set in a – basically in and around a country club in New Jersey in 1985, and it is the most original admixture of John Hughes and Philip Roth I've ever seen. It is, it's 10 episodes. It is funny. It's touching. What? It's very exact. And as I say, whoever thought that you could make a Philip Roth novel into a John Hughes movie? What, what, what is the difference between a mixture and an admixture? I, you know what? I'm embarrassed to say an admixture is more pretentious. <laughs> huh. Okay. Um, That's just, that I think one is last the thing about, about Lost, uh, yeah. just so you guys know with the impact that you have. We talked about Lost like two podcasts ago, yeah. and I was so worked up about how much I hated it and how angry I was about it that I chewed out my research assistant here at AI about it because he's a big Lost fan. And then Jim Pithakukis came by. Um, and oh, he's a he's an apologist. Pethicook he's a huge apologist. apologist. And I just started berating him, and he was like, "Like, I'm just trying to get to my office. You know? <laughs> <laughs> get in here, Pethakukis. You apologist. It's all about the characters. Yeah, it's all about the characters. That's what they say. But you know what isn't about the characters, guys? But is about ideas and the greatest thoughts that mankind has ever thought is the great courses. The Great Courses. We're big fans of The Great Courses. And they have a new video learning service, and we're excited to tell you about it. It's called The Great Courses Plus, where you can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to The Great Courses lecture series on thousands of topics taught by top professors. We really want you to try The Great Courses Plus. So they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill, and hundreds of others, absolutely free. Taught by award-winning professor Kenneth Brown. Uh, I'm sure he – I don't know what award it was. Uh, I won an award too once but I'm not, from the uh, University of Missouri, which I'm very – where – and then 20 years later, you know, Melissa Click was there. So I don't know how – Most But she wasn't there then. Little equestrian at the sleepaway go. camp. Go ahead. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that, <laughs> like, that course is a great toolkit to help master the powers of influence and persuasion both personally and professionally. With the Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. Uh, you can stream hundreds of courses. Watch for free. When you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop, that's thegreatcoursesplus, one word, dot com slash glop. And so uh, the Great Courses. Um, you know what else is a, what it was pretty great and classic is Whit Stillman's new movie, Love and Friendship, which I have a review of in – the Weekly Standard, which you can read uh, after good? midnight tonight, it is spectacularly good. Oh, it's, it's, I'm so it's, happy. Oh, good. Actually, it is actually uproariously funny, which I, I would not save his previous work, um, uh, which I love, but uh, m much of it I love. But I wouldn't. I would say it's sort of amusing, or you know, sort of thought provoking, or puts right. a smile on your face. There are actual, actually screamingly funny scenes. In Love and Friendship, which is which is his first period picture. It's based on an unfinished Jane Austen uh, epistolary novel called Lady Susan, um, and it is 
uh, 90 minutes. If you go in, you go out. Yeah. It's just it's and it's beautiful and beautifully acted and really funny. Uh, you know, I, I uh, he's a friend of mine with Stillman, and um, I remember having breakfast with him recently, and he was talking about this picture. He, he had not yet finished it, uh, or he was beginning it, or something. But there was there it was it was an un it was an unfinished work, and he kept saying, "I this is sort of a scary one, sort of a scary one." And I think he kind of like a lot, like a lot of people, when they sort of break through in a certain way and they start doing something a little different. It's a little, it's a has a little bit of a different quality from what they've been doing previously. There's a incredibly, it's incredibly terrifying. Sort of like my Um, dance career. Exactly. Well, well, like your like your exotic dance career. Yes, that's right. That's right. That was what's scarier. Now, um, uh, does he does he pull it off? He really pulls it off. Um, and and it's very much you interesting. Mean Stillman, not me in the dancing. Uh, no, oh, I, you, I mean, you rip I, it off. Yeah, I mean, you rip I will, it off and then you twirl it. The interesting thing about it is and then you throw it, it out into the crowd. It's set right, in like eighteen oh five instead of nineteen ninety eight. It's kind of a companion piece to the last days of disco, as you will see if you see it. That is Kate Beckinsale, who is the star of both pictures, kind of plays the same character. Um, in both, and is as magnificent in this as I think she was in in the last days of disco. That was so a fun I strong. I like that picture. Strong. Now, Jonah, you have something to say about the notorious uh, Facebook uh, scandal, where it turned out that the um, that the trending topics on Facebook were not being uh, listed in terms of uh, completely impersonal algorithms based on who was interested in the subject matter, but rather by um, editors basically who are of course are basically a bunch of liberal media types who suppress conservative stories in favor of stories about how wonderful Bernie Sanders is or something like that and uh, there was a big meeting yesterday in which a bunch of conservatives went to meet with Mark Zuckerberg strikingly enough most of them not actually editors of publications whose work was being suppressed because maybe they would have too many interesting questions and the fact that Many of them actually spent a lot of money on Facebook ads to, and Facebook positioning to get their 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 work out, and somehow are getting screwed by Facebook at the same time. Uh, but Jonah, you said you had yeah. So something. I just yeah. I mean, um. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, I'm not. I was never deeply invested nor surprised by this story. I mean, I because I'm a. I'm not really on Facebook, and I keep debating whether it's in my interest. Um, to be on Facebook. Uh, I'm open to suggestions from everybody about this, but then, um, uh, and also I'm a firm believer in O'Sullivan's law, which holds that any institution that is not expressly conservative becomes liberal over time. And so I just assumed that if there were humans involved at Facebook, given the givens, we're going to, there's going to be a liberal bias there. Cause I think there's a liberal bias in every institution in this country, from corporate America to universities, to every non explicitly conservative institution there is a it tends to be a liberal bias particularly in any 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 field that is well paid but um uh the funny thing is so i got an invitation and i will not say who sent me the invitation from somebody who uh a conservative you know politico type who now works at facebook i was invited to this meeting oh and at the last minute like uh, i was invited over the weekend and it was it was it was a meeting on Wednesday, and I think the invite came in on Sunday or Saturday or something. I was flying home from Europe on Monday, and um, and the thing is, I was invited to go to this. The meeting was at Facebook headquarters, right. 
And the invitation said, we would love to have you there. You're an important conservative, yada, yada, yada. Um, meetings at 1.30 on Wednesday at Facebook, on Facebook Way and Silicon Valley, wherever that is. And that's it. Now, it also said, you are, the meeting is off the record, but you are free to tell people that you were invited. And the thing that pisses me off about this is it was just sort of assumed that I was going to jump on a plane right. and fly to the West Coast on my own dime or my own publication's dime to talk to these guys at, at you know, booking a plane in 48 hours, which is like crazy expensive, at least if you're paying out of your own pocket. And so that they sort of knew that I wasn't going to come. <laughs> but what they wanted was for me to give the free sort of buzz publicity of saying I was invited because that makes it sort of sound how much more inclusive and they were trying to do outreach, right? And if I showed up, who cares, right? I mean, if I show up, I'm in the meeting, who cares? If I don't show up, I still go around telling people I was invited. So it's win-win for them. And, you know, I wasn't that interested in going that I was going to ask, shake them down for a plane ticket, but it just really annoyed me. You know, it's like when you get a speaking <laughs> invitation to come to the West Coast or something and they're like, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I can't just – I'm not going to get on a plane because you invited me. We have to figure out how to pay for me to get out there and all that kind right. of stuff. Or when, when you write a book and people go, oh, I, w- I can't wait to read your book. Please send me a copy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, I, that uh, once happened to me with the Milken Institute. So the Milken Institute run by Mike Milken who was worth you know, $85 squillion invited me to come be on a panel. And I said, great. Well, you know, what's the – What's the honorarium? And they were like, oh, there, there, there's no honorarium. And I said, oh, okay, well, uh, uh, you cover travel. How, how, how are the travel expenses? Oh, right. it's, and I said, what are you talking about? You, you have like $150 <laughs> million. They're like, well, it's a great opportunity for you to network with people. I'm like, yeah. you don't get me for, you know, you don't, are you crazy? <laughs> like, <laughs> great it's because everybody it's else to- goes has a private plane or is some businessman who thinks that being in proximity to a bunch of you know other businessmen is good for them, and I'm supposed to be like the entertainment for them, right? And I'm supposed to tap dance for free. It's like, what does he know? You get on. What do you mean, Joni? You're supposed to get on your private plane. I mean, and this is and fly this out is, there. This is like a related peeve of mine, um, where. You know, I'm sure you guys have the same thing where people ask you all the time to write for their 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 new weird web app or their new community thing, their new glorp, you know, queen astray, whatever thing. And you're like, well, what does it pay? And they say, well, we don't pay anything, but it's a fantastic platform for you. Yeah. And and I, you know. This is the kind of spun up stuff I can't. I, I, I honestly, I don't mind when like some friends who run you know various websites ask me to contribute some small thing to a symposium for free. I get that. That's fine. And I say if I can do it, I can do it. If I can, I can't. That's fine. But I cannot stand people who, when people try to explain to me that they're doing me a favor, right, by right. giving me an opportunity to do something for free for them. Right, and yeah. what I, I dream of the day for somebody to you're welcome, me, you know, yeah. like because what you always get is this oil, and it'll help you with speeches, or it'll help you with with your column, or with with moving books, or whatever. You know, I would love for someone to say to me, "Hey, look, there is there's no synergy here whatsoever. There are no knock on benefits for you at all. So yeah. to compensate you, we're just going to pay you a lot of money." 
No right. one ever says yeah. that. They always want to make yeah. it seem like they're doing me a favor, and it drives me crazy. I once had a uh, had a meltdown about stuff like this. We, I mean, you know, this is sort of not necessarily the most attractive way to be, but I, I, I just like I and I went through my inbox. Just from one day, it was insane, and and there were about seven emails from people asking for stuff. Like write yeah. this, write that, and no email saying, "Hey, we, here we have some money for you, and we'd like to give it to you if you do X." That's fine. I can say yes, no to that. But the, what I get, I mean, I don't get as many of the writing for free things, but mostly because of people just know that I'm in, in, in just in my my one true love in the world is money, and and I, I will never, <laughs> I will never betray my one love. Um, I get. Would, would you read this? Yeah. Would you read my novel? Yeah. Read, read your novel. I, mean, I don't have time to read a real novel. Um, yeah. But that said, I, could, I, could I just – I mean could I just change the topic a little bit? Sure. Um, I, um, I've been going back and forth with a, 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 a very fine writer who's a listener to this uh, podcast and a, a Ricochet um, member. Uh, and he's a very fine writer. I won't mention his name because I don't know if he wants me to. Uh, but we're working on a little project together we sort of talked about yesterday. But we, we were back and forth yes, last week on, on – um, for some reason on – on stupid cliches of television shows that we really like, and his he started with like got a smarmy white collar antagonist need to establish his alpha male bona fides. No problem, Joe. Just show him burning up the racquetball court. <laughs> it's true. Like, like no, nobody but a villain ever plays racquetball. <laughs> Um, and then I said uh, yes, and then he should turn to the detective and say, "Come on, detective, let's play. Let's play a game together. You like games, don't you?" <laughs> and then he said, um, and then off of that same moment includes the line, "We're not so different, you and I." That's my so favorite. Just, We're not yeah. so different, you and I is my favorite. Like <laughs> there is always a moment. There is the the best one is in Nighthawks, which is this old. Um, uh, Sylvester Stallone movie about how somebody brilliantly hijacks the tram between Midtown Manhattan and Roosevelt Island. Oh, it's a good idea. Which is really, I would say, not a really good hijacking plan. Right? I don't know. I mean, no, it's like, very bad because they're windows like, anywhere. Where are you going <laughs> to go? You're going to get away. Anyway, so they hijack it, and like <laughs> Rutger Hauer is like hanging from a wire. You know, about to fall into the East River, and he looks up at Sylvester Stallone, who has like come to rescue, and he says, "You're a lot alike, you and I." You know, but like with his arm, and he's like looking up, about to fall into the water. I always thought that, <laughs> that was the best. A lot alike, you and I thing. So I caught, and I actually tweeted about it yesterday. Um, you know, you know the serendipity of just turning on the TV, and whatever channel you left it on is what it right. You know, back on. Some cable channel was running – I don't want to ruin it, but I think it was called Cutaway or Cut Loose, Cutaway. And it's a Stephen Baldwin movie with Dennis Rodman and uh, and wow. uh, what's the guy from um, um, Platoon? Tom Berenger and um, oh, also the uh, – and Ron Silver. I mean it's like a cast of – Holy you know, moly. It is the Cannonball Run of like bad no, – The Cannonball Run 3. <laughs> and so it is a movie about how Steve Baldwin is a customs agent who doesn't play by the rules. <laughs> and he is um, trying to get to the bottom of some coke smuggling thing, and he figures out that it is being done by these 
hotshot, living on the edge, parachuting, skydiving enthusiasts. And the movie is from what I I only watched like 10 minutes of it. It is almost to the dialogue a remake of Point Break with Parachute. Sounds like Point Break, yeah. Point Break with Parachute. They refers to the guys who just turn their back on normal bourgeois society and embrace the flow and cut away everything the same way you would cut away a bad chute when it doesn't open. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't you love free falling? You just jump into the ocean, into the ocean of air. Yeah, all that. Um, uh, But that that movie was probably, you know, greenlit and sold from a one-sheet, right? So right. they would take that one sheet, basically a, a poster that says, you know, something has uh, parachutists, and they go to a film market, like American Film Market or some down place, down market film, and they go, here's our one sheet, and we have Stephen Baldwin. Here's our one sheet, we have Tom Berenger. And, and, and then they get the financing, and then they go and make the picture. Um, to this week, I mean, I, I know we want to wrap, but I just want to say, that just to, because we are supposed to be about culture, and we have a, a Glop podcast listener who emails me regularly to say, hey, nice talk about the culture that you didn't do. Um, <laughs> um, uh, this week, it's called Upfronts in television, in television business, all in New York. Uh, it's when uh, TV networks, cable and, and broadcast, and the big sort of media companies come to New York to present their uh, – what is traditionally their fall schedule, their new shows to advertisers, but it tends to be sort of a general – um, presentation of everything they've got cooking, even in the summer and even on now and all that stuff. Uh, and and the, what's weird about it is that it represents like this incredibly hand-picked, very low-tech way of choosing shows. Even now with all the market research they do, it still does come down to a bunch of people in a room trying to decide what somebody might like to, to, to watch. And I'm just like c- contrasting that with what Facebook was saying with their, their algorithm. I write about this in um, – in my weekly column for the English language uh, Abu Dhabi newspaper, The National. Uh, yeah, you're not the only people in the in the press. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it just it just shows you how complicated it can be to try to figure out what people what will interest them, what they might click on. Um, and Facebook. Can had I that just say too. one thing? Can I yeah. just say one thing? Which is that yeah. um, there is a show on TBS. It premieres on June 14th. It's called Wrecked. It's a kind of uh, combination. Uh, it's a sitcom lost is the only way I can describe it. And uh-huh. everybody here should watch it. Would you like to know why? Why? Because your wife because is packaging. Because my wife, my wife, who is um, a talent agent, uh, has a really uh, spectacular client named Jessica Lowe who is a star of Wrecked. And every one, of you, every one of you out there will do me a huge favor if you watch Wrecked. How is that different uh, from asking you to write something for free? My because, time is worth money. You want me TV. to watch a half-hour show right, to so put money in your it. pocket? Watch it or don't watch it. It's called Wrecked. It's on TBS <laughs> June 14th. I'll watch it. You'll either watch it or you won't watch it. She's adorable. Je- Jessica Lowe. Please Jessica watch Wrecked. Jessica Lowe. You watch Wrecked, and here's how you can – here's the problem with a show like that or any show or, or any. There's like no that. problem. There is a problem. The problem is cutting through the clutter. Hey, friends, let me ask you a question. How many emails do you have cluttering your inbox right now? A hundred, a thousand, twenty thousand? If your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing: even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all. But there were just too many emails to go through at one time. And then I discovered. I discovered. The copy says, uh, 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 "Talk about who recommended it." But I discovered it myself. I've been. I've been a 
customer of SaneBox for three years. They let me in on the secret. It's SaneBox. I can't recommend it enough. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff in a different folder, and only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Uh, there's even the thing called this uh, sane black hole. You can move something to the black hole. You never see an email from that person again, which if you get a lot of junk mail or the junk mail sometimes makes its way through whatever spam filter you're using, you can uh, nuke it with the black hole. Move an email to that folder. You'll never see it again. I use SaneBox. I love SaneBox. They coincidentally um, wanted to advertise on our Ricochet um, audio network, and um, I was thrilled because – uh, it's a great product. Uh, if you visit sanebox.com slash ricochet today, today, they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of a two-week free trial. I'm telling you, you will love it. Uh, you don't have to enter credit card information until you decide to buy, so there's nothing to lose. Check it out today. Let me know if you love the uh, SaneBox call as much as I do, and you can reach Inbox Zero every day. Again, that's sanebox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash ricochet. Get your credit. We thank them not only for advertising but for a great product because, of course – the theme of today's uh, glop has been cutting through the clutter. Like, I, I, just tell me how it goes on Game of Thrones. Just, just stop. Uh, do, do better with the the newsfeed uh, trending topics in that. Go yeah, ahead. and that kind of thing. And watch and, rat and all that. And watch rat. <laughs> watch rat. And watch yeah. rat. When is um, when is the premiere though? Seriously, uh, June fourteenth on TBS. June fourteenth, I think at nine p.m. Um, huh. And so it took I, a slot, huh? Uh, there you go. Uh, so it is your old slot, and it's the best show in that slot since your since your show. Uh-huh. We'll see. So I'll there we have those it. numbers very carefully. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. And you call yeah. call me about. Them. You will only call me about them if they if they yeah seem more favorably inclined toward you than they do toward my. That's wife. how you'll know. That's how you'll know that uh, my show did better that night. Uh, exactly. Two, 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 three years ago, uh, I will call you. That's right. Thank you very much. <laughs> I will Jonas, be your sane box for that. You want to, uh, <laughs> that's right. I'm going to put you in the black hole if it doesn't get away. <laughs> uh, Jonah, do you have anything up that uh, people can come see you and uh, hawk you, as my grandmother would say, hawk you about something, about giving you them you something for free? I actually I don't. The only major thing I have on my calendar is uh, to watch Wrecked on June 14th. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, if I could close on a slightly somber and sad note, um, yeah. if that's okay with you guys, uh, sure. yesterday I had the sad duty of attending um, the, the the funeral oh, right. of East Ferguson, the the wife of Andrew Ferguson, uh, longtime writer for the Weekly Standard and for commentary, the author of the great book Crazy You and the even greater book Land of Lincoln. Andy is one of uh, my dearest friends and known to all of you and uh, Denise was a, 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 a wonderful, glorious, kind uh, soul, uh, big-hearted person, and she died at the age of 56. And there was a funeral mass for her in Arlington, Virginia. And as I as I uh, as I reflected sitting there, not being a Catholic and not being a Christian, it was one of the first times in my life that. Uh, I was ma- made to feel as though I really hoped that what the priest was saying about her eternal life would, in fact, be be true. So I'm sorry to end this on a on on this sad note, but I think that um, when someone dies as unjustly young as Denise did, and who was as wonderful as Denise was, and whose family has 
has done so much to entertain and delight us over the years. It's worth it's worth making note of it. And uh, I agree. And I hope you, I agree. I hope you here, here. If you don't mind. She, and, she, uh, she was lovely. And 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 uh, um, for, for if if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know um, Andy Ferguson's work, uh, it is. Shame on you! <laughs> it, yeah, shame on you! It is magical. That guy, yeah. that guy can write. I mean, yeah. he can write. Uh, and, um, and I don't. I don't mean to now. I mean, uh, just if we could just we can we should just note this. This also happened. Um, uh, CBS sixty Minutes correspondent Morley Safer died today. Wow. Morley Safer is a Morley Safer. It turned out there was some moment at which Morley Safer revealed uh, to me. Um, at a party, uh, just leave it there. Just leave right there. He just revealed to you. Right? No, he was a. He must have been a distant cousin of mine. That his his mother's his his mother's maiden name uh, had had a suggestion of Potthoritz in it, and uh, and so um, aside from his aside from this, aside <laughs> that, from, well, that is the title of your autobiography, that, John. That's right. A suggestion yes. of Potthoritz. Yes. Well, it's a complicated thing anyway but um he was actually a very very kind pleasant um decent person um and i don't think someone i I never i don't think i ever heard anybody say a a a bad word against him um sharp dresser too professional life and a sharp dresser so so these are the two tributes that we pay um and uh and on that memorial note um let us uh let us uh be kind to one another, and we will see you again next month. Nicely done. Farewell. Okay. Change your heart. Look around you. Change your heart. It will astound you. Everybody's got to learn sometime Everybody's got to learn sometime Everybody's got to learn sometime
Ricochet. Join the conversation. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. <laughs>